Finally, the Israelites are there after crossing the Jordan and invading the land and uh, astonishingly capturing Jericho and meeting some interesting people on the way. They're there finally settled. They're about to take possession of the land and try to divide among themselves. For people who are visiting today, we as a church, we've been looking into the book of Joshua. We started a few weeks ago. And today we are going to look into the chapters from 13 to 21. Yes, I know it's a big chunk. <laughs> Hope you've got your lunch with you. It's going to be a marathon sermon. Um, I will come to the serious part here. I and Sandy, we decided not to read the entire chapter, but we are going to surf through the chapters, but dip in every now and then. The chapter 13 to 21 is all about the land distribution. The author is given a big portion in that book for this land distribution. So there should be a reason for it. Recently, my brother sent me this picture from India. This is an old railway bridge besides a railway station, and this picture was taken just right in front of our house. So I used to live there, and my brother sent... Uh, and the train service has stopped for many years when steam engines gave way to diesel engines. So trains doesn't run anymore, so more like a derelict place. So now the government has decided to resume the train service, so they're going to completely modernize that place. So my brother took this picture and said to me, keep that soon when you come back home next time, it's not going to be the same like this. For people like you looking at this picture, it's just like a picture of an old railway bridge. But for me, that's the place where I grew up. That's the road where I used to cross across to go to my school. That's the place where I learned to ride my bicycle. I used to hang around with my friends. So this picture, for me, there are events involved in this picture. The Bible story of redemption starts with a promise. And the main constituent of that promise which was repeated again and again to the forefathers, was that God is going to give Abraham and his descendants a land. So we must see this through the eyes of the Israelites, how they saw this land. The three main points I'm going to take you through when you're looking to these chapters, the land was basically a divine gift from God. And the people of Israel received the land through faith. And this land was the fulfillment of God's promise. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. It is found on page 228 in the Bible, if you're following from the Bible, kept in the pew. Joshua 13, chapter 1. So when Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old, and these are, there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. In this verse, you could see a similarity to the first verse of Joshua chapter 1, the promise being reaffirmed by God. In the first chapter, first verse, God is reaffirming on the face of Moses' death, and now the promises comes back 
at the face of Joshua's old age. The author is trying to emphasize here that the promise of God will not be hindered by his servants because it is from the everlasting God. It will go on. No one can stop it. After that, God lists a list of cities in the next following verses. And then in verse 6, we jump there. It says, As for all the inhabitants of the mountain regions from Lebanon to Misrephoth, Mem, that is all the Sidonians, I myself will deliver them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israelites for an inheritance, as I have instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. This land, as I mentioned, it is the divine gift. And in the sixth verse, God says, I myself will drive. This is an emphatic word spoken with force and definitive action. God owns this land and it is from God. So he is the owner of this land and he is giving it to the people as a gift. The God of Israel is not like other gods who is like a figurehead for the nationalism or merely a functional protector of their territory. But this God wants to engage with the people. He wants to own them and he wants to rule over their lives, not just the land. This shows that these people had to depend on God and this God and God's love and faithfulness. The word Hebrew and the word Hebrew slave has got linked to the word apiru, which is found in the Mediterranean and Egyptian text, which meant landless people or people who gave up the land for the sake of labor. So these people who didn't have land and until now they didn't even earn to possess this land. Only Abraham brought a piece of land to bury his wife Sarah. Now these landless people are coming to possess the entire Palestine. Deuteronomy 9.5 says, It is not because of the Israelites' righteousness or because of their uh, uprightness, but just because of the oath that God gave to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is the reason why God is giving this land to them. See, they don't deserve it, and God took the initiative and is going to give this land to them. This same God did that, taking his initiative, coming into this world to give us his kingdom. So it is by grace that these people inherited that land. It is by grace that you and I am here today. And it is by grace that we come here every week to acknowledge the sovereignty and the grace of God. This land also showed that the people who depend on this God and this giver is dependable because he is God of history and his steadfast love endures forever. The faithfulness of God and his power of love is control of history which brought them out of Egypt and is going to give this land to them. That's why we are requested to obey him completely. And this land is also a proof of the relationship between God and the people of Israel. In the earlier words we read 
the word, God wants to give this land as an inheritance. This is a very intimate word between a father and son, where a son inherits it from God. And that's the relationship which God wants with the people of Israel. And that's the reason why he delivered them. He did not just deliver them and left them there in the land. He wanted to engage with them and have this relationship with those people. And God wants to do that with us too. This was their individual property. In, the second, in First Kings we read when Ahab wanted the land from Naboth, he says, God forbid, how could I give this land? Because this is my inheritance that I got it from my forefathers. So they have to frame a case that he blasphemed. That's why he was able to get this land from uh, Naboth. So that was their personal inheritance. That was their identity. Therefore, life without land was life without God for the people of Israel. So this land was part of God's redemption. It is a divine gift, and they don't own it. The author then moves on to say how the land was divided. So he starts off with Caleb, who belonged to the tribe of Judah. But before we move to that, um, we need to know a little bit of the uh, prequel of Caleb's story. Um, we could turn back to Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 to 10. Numbers chapter 14, verses beginning at 6. And we all, we all know this familiar story where 12 tribes were sent out to spy the land. All 12 came back, but 10 reported all the difficulties of the land. They said, these peoples are like giants. They've got strong fortified cities. The walls are huge. And we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. But Caleb and Joshua came back and said, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because he will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Caleb's devotion to faith was a lonely faith. Twelve people came back, only two stood up to say that that land God is going to give us. Caleb saw the opportunity. Caleb was not an optimist, but a believer. And Israel is not a realist, but they did not believe God. Caleb and Joshua told their close, they were so mad about their faith in God. Many times our faith is like that. We need to stand alone in the midst of skepticism and human logic and human reasoning. They risk their life for the sake of faith. Today people are still risking their life for the sake of faith. Reading a, a bus line magazine where the pastor risks his life in Cuba, father and daughter risking their life in Egypt, and people are still risking their lives in persecuted countries. Even in our church, 
in midst of all difficulties, in midst of sickness, financial crisis, physical challenges, people are holding on to the faith of God. They are like Caleb and Joshua for us. They are standing here as a witness. Faith is a courage and it is a willingness to stand alone against the grain. So what was Caleb's faith was based on? Was it faith was just based on his feelings? Was it faith based on faith? No, his faith was based on the word of God. The object of Caleb's faith was God because he is dependable. We want to read the passages from Joshua chapter 14 verses beginning at 6. And while I read through, look for these two phrases. I followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. And the second phrase is, as the Lord said to Moses. So we start at verse 6 of Joshua chapter 14. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb son of Jephunneh at Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I am then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard them that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb son of Jephunneh and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Those two phrases came thrice each. That shows where God, uh, Caleb's faith was based on. He was 85 years old now. He's not standing on his own. He's got his whole tribe backing him. He must have told his faith to his generations. That's why we keep telling stories to people how God has helped us, how God has been faithful to us. That is why we share our witnesses and fellowships. Parents tell their God's faithfulness to their children and grandparents to their grandchildren. So it's very important to tell to our family and the people around how God has been faithful to us. Caleb didn't stop by just believing in God, but he stepped into action. The giants are there, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites are there. Still the cities are fortified. Still they look like grasshoppers in their eyes. But Caleb says, trap me up. Give me the mountain. Caleb remembers God and his goodness and mercy in the past. This is what faith does. Faith looks into the past, 
seeing God and his goodness, draws it back from past into the present. And it ponders over it and praises God for that and goes on and gains strength to strength into the future. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. Verse 12 suggests two facts that shot Adonel into Caleb's Lord, uh, uh, um, Caleb's faith. One is the extreme difficulty of the task. Another one is the unguessable favor of the Lord. God's word is seldom about some bare, purely spiritual inner abstraction. Many times it requires action. Faith without action is dead. And the author in chapter 19 finishes off this land allotment by explaining how land was given to Joshua. So the author has deliberately started off with Caleb and ends the land allotment with Joshua. In between he has got all the other ten people in there. He is trying to highlight that these two people have been the witness to God's faithfulness of God. So we saw the divine gift given to the land and we also saw how the people received it by faith. But what is the significance of the land in this promise? God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness. Wilderness filled with thorns and thistles. Now they are entering into land flowing with milk and honey. God not only delivered them from spiritual bondage, but God also delivered them from their social economic status. Chris Wright, while he was principal in a seminary college in India, he wrote a book called Living as People of God. In that he explains the relationship between the land, the people and God of Israel. The land was their identity. The blessing, prosperity and rejoicing of the people is all based on the land. The laws were based upon the life living in the land. Their understanding of God and the relationship that God wanted with them it's all based upon their life as a community and also how they're going to live in this land. Even their rituals were based on the land, the produce of the land, the harvest festival, the ingathering festival, and the sacrifices are from the produce of the land. So land plays a crucial part in the Israelites' life. The land was divided equally with all the people. It shows that God's grace is for everyone. And everyone is included in that. There's a big shift in their social economic status. There are people of no land, and now they own the land, and they are free to eat their own fruits. So God not only looks after the spiritual need, but the entire need of the people. And God also says that because you did not earn for this land, it was given to you by grace, so you got to look after the people who are landless among you, the orphans, the widows, all the immigrants, the aliens. They are your responsibility. You have to look at them and look after them. So their relationship with God was not a personal thing, 
but involve the whole community and the land with them. That's the significance of the land. And even the cities of refuge, which we will see in chapter 20, were strategically placed. Because these cities were built there so that if anybody by mistake kills a person, he goes there for refuge until the proper um, trial has been done to that person. This shows God's compassion to the people. And in that same chapter, God says that cities of refuge is not only for the people of Israel, but even for the strangers, they could go and take refuge. So God shows the inclusiveness of the whole community. So this land is like a model in the fallen humankind and the cursed earth. God is trying to use this new community that God has formed, where he is going to be the central. Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle was built in the land, where God is going to be central there. And this is the model that God wants to, um, to keep as a light in that place. And this model has extended now, where God has put the church and the fellowship, the koinonia. This fellowship is not only with the believers, but is going to reach out into the community at large. That's why we call ourselves a church without walls. And we have projects in our church where we want to show people how can we love them. That is what God wants us to do. It's not just to have a personal relationship with God, but our relationship and our understanding of God and our gratefulness of God involves people around us. We serve God and love God through our lives and through reaching out to the people around us, not only for their spiritual need, but also in the social economic status. And this is a model, and this is a prototype of what is going to come in the future. Finally, God is going to break, bring this redeemed humanity, and he's going to bring this new creation. That's why we, this story is very, very relevant to us. And whenever God gives a promise, it was always tangible. When he said, I will give you the land, it was not just an idea. It was boundaries. It was not just thought. It was towns and cities. In short, it was a real estate. God's promise is always tangible. And people could see and touch it. When God promised Abraham that your descendants is going to inherit the land, people inherited the land. It was physical. And when God promised the people of Israel that I'm going to send a Messiah who is going to deliver you, the incarnation of Messiah was tangible. People were able to see and touch him. That's why we see the gospel writers say, we write what we have seen and touched. And now God has given this promise to the church that he's going to take us into eternity where the kingdom of God is going to be established in his fullness. And that promise has to be tangible. And did God make that eternity tangible? Did God make the kingdom of God tangible to us? Yes, he did. He did it at, in his own time, in his own way. When Jesus Christ was on earth, people touched him and felt him. But he said, the kingdom of God is here. How did Jesus bring the kingdom of God here if the kingdom of God is in eternity? Where the king is, 
there is the kingdom. And how do you know God is the kingdom of eternity? Well, when Jesus died and he rose, and his resurrection is the evidence that he brought the kingdom. He brought the kingdom from, from eternity in time, in space, before the earth ended, before the time ended. So the promise of God is tangible. And God says, I have given the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 11, he says, The same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from dead is in you. That means we are being promised of our eternity. We are not going to die and be as spirits roaming around, but we are going to live resurrected body in the eternity. People touched Jesus. Thomas touched the resurrected body of Jesus. It was tangible. So is our promise. So the kingdom of God is here. It's here in this city. Here and when he returns, it's going to be in its fullness. His promise is here. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, we have this promise. It is a reality, no more an idea or a thought. It is tangible. So there are people still who have to belong to this kingdom of God. And they need to see this kingdom of God in reality. And it is our duty to make people to realize that kingdom of God. So for some people it has to be physical tangibility. That's why we are involved not only in gospel preaching, but we are also involved in meeting the needs of the people. As the Levites, they were not given any inheritance, but they were given towns all over the territory so that they should preserve the covenant of the people with their God. So are we as light and salt into the society, not only to tell them about the salvation of their souls, but also the salvation of the total humanity, the wholeness of the body and the soul. That's why we have to look after the people who are homeless, people who are orphans, who are widows, the drug addicts, the teenagers living, hanging out in the alleyways, the immigrants, the refugees. Ours is a church without walls. We don't hang around with our own community. We are spread wide open. Reach the community, the city at large. Because the kingdom of God is here. And if we have Christ, we have the kingdom of God in us. And it is our bound duty to make it realized in people's lives. Because God's promise is here. Read the last few verses on chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. <clears throat> so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. 
everyone was fulfilled. That sums up the whole narrative of Joshua. How firm the word of God promises. Nothing could stop him from fulfilling his promise. Neither the Pharaoh nor the conspiration of his own people. How tenacious are God's fidelity is to his promise and his people. We could only worship him. God gave them finally the rest from all the enemies. God will again destroy the enemies and give us rest, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. And as Micah says, every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. So this promise is here and now. His kingdom is here and now. And are you part of this kingdom? Do you have this promise? The Israelites took the promise. It was tangible. It was a divine gift from God. And all they had to do is to receive it by faith. And if you could receive it by faith, this promise could be yours. And if you're already a part of God's kingdom, thank God for it. But think what you're doing for the expansion of God's kingdom. How are you involved in expanding his kingdom? How is your life transforming the people around you? Are they able to feel and touch the kingdom of God? Help them to realize that God's kingdom is here. His love and faithfulness fulfilled the promise. It is already fulfilled and it's going to be fulfilled again in its completeness and his faithfulness and, and his love will continue to do it. And his Holy Spirit is there to help us. And when we see him face to face, we will see his kingdom in his all its glory. Amen.